This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. As we continue in our our series in Genesis, let's go right to verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elessar, Kedorliomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Gohim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the sea of the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorliomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorliomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtoreth, Canarim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shavah, Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bila, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorliomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elessar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was filled with bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedorliomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread of a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Blessed be the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this Lord's Day morning to worship and praise you. Father, we come now to your holy word and we confess, Lord, that the Bible is sometimes, even so in a day like today, in a chapter like this, a complex book. But we know, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and the divine aid that you provide, that we could understand these things, um, interpreting spiritual matters with spiritual things. And so, Father, we just pray, dear God, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts to receive from you uh, wondrous things out of your law today, that we would behold your glory. I pray, Father, that you would help us to have a greater picture of Christ and a greater picture of your glory. And I pray even for myself as I speak, Lord, that as I speak, I would speak your words, not my own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes in life, very talented and very gifted people go unnoticed in life. Some of you here might have jobs where where you are very gifted and very talented at what you do. Um, and maybe you work in a company where your gifts go largely unnoticed. Maybe uh, you do not get the recognition that you deserve or the promotion. Uh, and someone who has political connections gets the promotion before you. Or perhaps you're a very talented or gifted individual, and because of the economy the way it is right now, although you can do some very good jobs, because of the competitiveness of this poor economy and the high unemployment rates, you are finding yourself doing a job that is far below your qualifications. And this is very common in today's uh, um, world. But there are many people that are gifted and talented in many areas that never seem to get their recognition uh, of what they are. Uh, There are many great athletes. We may have our favorite baseball and football players, and we may think they're really good. The truth of the matter is there are athletes out there that are just as good, if not better than them, that just have not been discovered yet or have not been recognized. There are great actors and singers out there um, that we may like and uh, put in our iPads and we like to listen to certain people sing, but there are people that are far better or if not equal or better singers uh, than those that we most like. Um, We may have our favorite preachers that we like to listen to, but there may be guys out there who are just as equal, if not better, preachers than the ones who are in the spotlight. Perfect example is my cousin Trisha. My cousin Trisha is one of the most talented actresses I ever met in my life. She had a few shots in Broadway plays. I got to see her several years ago perform in Greece um, down in Broadway. And I mean, when I tell you she's an extraordinary singer, when I tell you she's an extraordinary actress... But for 25 years, she invested herself and could not get the break. And trust me, she was far more talented and gifted than many people in the industry. Today, she works in advertising sales, and she's doing okay for herself because eventually she had to realize there was no hope in that industry. But the point here is, is that while there are many people out there 
who never get recognized or discovered, and they are extremely talented and extremely gifted, we need to go back some 3,000 years ago to our good friend Abraham. Remember, he was called by God. And he was promised many things by God. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. Um, and there was one of those, of all those seven promises, there was one promise that came in there um, that, that we haven't seen really come to pass yet. He says, and I will make your name great. We're going back to Genesis 12, 1 through 6. We've seen the idea of those who bless you, I'll bless those who cur- dishonor you, I'll curse. We've seen uh, Abraham's uh, uh, borders enlarged. We've seen God has made him a very uh, a wealthy man. Uh, we've seen that the Lord has been with him up to this point. But, but he still is a relatively unknown guy. I mean, we know who he is, but going back 3,000 years ago, here's little old Abraham living in Canaan. He has his sheep. He just separated with Lot. He's kind of settled near Hebron um, by the Oaks of Mamre. Uh, he's made an alliance there with, with uh, Mamre and his brothers. But he's relatively unknown. Nobody knows who Abraham is. But that's all about to change in today's chapter. There's a turn of events that take place that put Abraham in a position where he needs to rise to the occasion. And he does rise to the occasion, so much so that he becomes recognized all throughout the region that he lives in. And so we see God's promise come to pass in his life. And so we're going to look about look at the next stage in the, in the course of Abraham's life. He, he, he went from being this unknown guy in Ur, called by God, moves to Canaan, um, goes to Egypt, has his backsliding moment, comes back to the Lord. Him and Lot have this disagreement. Lot goes his way. He stays in Canaan. And here he is just settling, doing his thing. And all of a sudden, some turn of events are going to change everything. And that's how it usually is in our lives, right? There's always going to be a moment where we're going to call to rise to occasion. And the question is, will you rise to the occasion when God puts you in that point in your life? Or are you just going to sit back and be passive? All right, let's... Let's see what's going on. First thing we have to realize, there's a war going on in the Middle East. Nothing unusual here, right? Uh, if you've been watching the news this past week, you've seen that across the Middle East, in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, in Yemen, um, and in, uh, um, I can't remember the other country, oh, the Sudan, uh, that American embassies have been bombarded. Um, in Libya, one of our diplomats was, was killed and murdered. Um, um, uh, black flags of Islam, Islam have been uh, posted above our embassies and the American flag has been burned. Um, we have been entrenched in war in the Middle East since 9-11. Uh, we're in Afghanistan. And, and, and make no mistake about it, before we even got involved in the Middle East, there's been wars going on in that region of the world for thousands of years. There's really nothing new in that region of the world. It is a warring area And we could trace it right back here to the Bible. In fact, this is the first mention we have of a war in chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Um, There is a war between two coalitions. There's there's a Mesopotamian coalition, um, the Mesopotamian region being where modern-day Iran is, uh, led by Kedorliomer. He is is a king. He has uh, brought together with him four kings uh, altogether, he and three others, which were four. Uh, and they formed a coalition that were basically uh, 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 dominating the area politically. Um, they, had, they were a confederacy, they were a dominant power, and they subjected city-states in the region of the Middle East to their power. They were like a kingdom. They were an empire. 
In fact, uh, what we can understand is that they had what we call a suzerain-vassal state kind of relationship where as they would subject and conquer these smaller city-states and say, listen, we'll be at peace with you, uh, we'll protect you, and if you have any problems with the Egyptians, if you have any problems with uh, the, the, the Assyrians or any of your neighbors, call us and we'll come back you up. But here's the catch. You've got to pay us an annual tribute. Once a year, your king must come up to uh, where we live, must come to our city and present the gift of gold and silver and, and, and calves and animals and donkeys. Once a year, you must come and give the very best, a tribute once a year, kind of like a tax, so that we'll protect you, right? Kind of sounds like uh, the mafia, right? That's how the mafia operates. Uh, uh, you know, they come in into your, if you open a restaurant, well, we'll keep you safe and protect you. Just pay us once a month for your protection services. Well, anyway, that's exactly what's going on here. And so we have this first coalition. Um, it's made up of Amraphel, king of Shinar, which is Babylonia. Some have identified him with Nimrod or Hammurabi, but we cannot be certain of that. Uh, Tidal and Arioch, um, and of course, Kedorliomer, who is the leader of this. Then we see the subjects, city-states. The, the area, uh, there's another confederacy, another coalition of city-states that are essentially subject to this dominant power. And they, they sit there and say, you know what, we don't want to be subject. We don't, we're tired of paying the tribute um, uh, to Kedorliomer. And so we see this uh, second coalition made up of five Transjordanian cities. Now remember... Last time Lot looked out the valley of Jordan, it was green. This is the, the area that is uh, east of Israel, east of Palestine, and it's well watered, it's lush, it's beautiful. Um, and there's five cities there. There's Sodom, there's Gomorrah, there's Zoar, Adma, and Zeboim. And these five city-states basically form a coalition that after 12 years of paying tribute to Kedorliomer, they say, you know what, we've had it. Let's join forces, the five cities. Let's join forces and let's... Let's, let's refuse to pay the tribute. Let's, we're just not going to pay it this year. And so in the 13th year, we read that they stopped paying the tribute. One year later, in the 14th year, Kedor Leomer, after waging a campaign from north to south, from modern-day Iran down to the Transjordanian Valley, says, you know what, guys, come on. Let's go teach these, these city-states a lesson. They don't want to pay us. We'll teach them what goes on. So the 14th year uh, on the coalition of four nations comes down led by Kedorliomer and they basically pounce the five cities. They, they take them out. We have what we call the battle of four against five. They don't even have a chance. It says here um, in, in, in verse 10 that the valley of Sidim where the battle was fought was full of bitumen pits and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled some, of, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. There wasn't even a fight. As soon as Gedorliomer came, they ran. And there were bitumen pits. Bitumen pits are tar pits. If you've ever been to California, in L.A., they have the big tar pits. They bubble up. Um, these guys just fell into tar pits. They were sitting there drowning in tar. They thought the rest were running for the hills. Everybody was running. It wasn't even a battle. Kedorliomer essentially plundered all the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, Zoar, all the cities. He took all their possessions. He cleaned them out, so to speak. And that's what was done in an ancient world. You didn't pay the tribute? Okay, we'll teach you a lesson. And they basically raise the cities. They burn everything down. They take all the possessions. 
everything that could possibly, that's worth anything amount of wealth, they take slaves and they just basically leave everything behind. Now, this would have been a very clear victory for these powerful Mesopotamian kings. In all things equal, they would have walked away very successful. However, there was one small detail that they overlooked. There was one thing that they did really wrong. They made one big mistake. They took Lot. They took Lot. And if you don't remember who Lot, I mean, he, he's a fool. He's a fool of a took. Right? He, 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 he was the guy led by his passions. You know what? Forget about you, Uncle Abram. I'm going my way. I'm going to strike out on my own. Look at those prosperous cities down there. He was led by sight. He, he didn't have much spiritual compass in him. But guess what? He, he was still Abram's nephew. And guess what? If you mess with Lot, you mess with the wrong guy. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I remember years ago, um, I got into a car accident. I was on Central Avenue. I was getting off the Spring Parkway to Central Avenue North. And there was a car just, I, I mean, I'm young. I'm, I'm really stupid at the time. I'm not paying attention. Pow! I plowed into the guy from behind. And so, of course, being a young guy, you know, very arrogant and tough, I got out of the car. You stupid old man, what are you doing sitting there? Why, you should have got out of my way. Of course, he was wrong and I was right, you know. And um, this guy stepped out of the car. And uh, he was an old man. And, and then he started saying, do you know who I am? I said, no, I don't know who you are. I don't care who you are. And then he told me who he was. I don't even want to mention who he was. <laughs> but, but essentially, I messed with the wrong guy. <laughs> well, that's what happened here. And so we read here um, at the end of uh, this, and I just summarized everything that happened in verse 1 through 12. Um, we see verse, the end of verse 12. They took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling some in his possessions and went their way. And verse 13 tells us, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living the oaks by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite. So somebody escaped and went to Abram and told him what happened. This, this was not a good thing. Now, now we can't imagine what Abram must have been thinking, but clearly this was, a, um, this was not the news he wanted to hear. And this was something that definitely was a problem. Now, now certainly, um, he could have sat there and said, you know what, Lot, the old, the old fool, he got, what had, he got what was coming to him. I mean, he, was, he disrespected me. He, he, he chose to live in, the, in this pagan land. He didn't believe in God. You know what? He got what he deserved. He made his bed now so let him sleep in it. And, and, and Abram could have taken that approach to it, but did he know? Well, what does he do? He goes to war. He takes action. Now, now, this is an interesting thing because in verses 13 through 16, we read about what Abram does. It says in in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. Now that word trained men um, is Hebrew for military men. Th- these, are, these are men who were not trained to go into the Olympics. These are not men who were trained to be boxers. These were not men trained to be tennis players. These were men trained to fight. So we see the wealth and we see the enormity of Abraham's entourage, how much it's grown. He has 318 trained, skilled military warriors who were born in his house. That tells us a lot about 
Abram. It tells us that, that these weren't merely slaves. These weren't people he acquired. They were born in his house. And with his allies, Mamre and his brothers, he went in pursuit as far as Dan. The word pursuit there also is a military term that means he was out to rescue his nephew Lot and he was going to do whatever it took to get them back. The Bible tells us there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 8. Now let's be clear, Abraham was not going to war for resources He was not going to war because he wanted to conquer Canaan. He trusted God was going to give him the land. He didn't have to draw a sword for that. He was going to war for one reason, to rescue his nephew. He was going to risk everything to go to war to save his nephew Lot because he loved him. He was essentially, I mean, I want you to think about it. He had 318 military trained men. That's a small militia. But that is nothing compared to Godoliomer and his coalition of armies. There would have been no doubt at least 200,000 strong fighting the battles with Godoliomer. So much so that the five Transjordanian cities had not a chance. They fled for their lives in the face of Godoliomer. But Abram, loving his nephew so much, throws himself on the line to save his nephew. I want you to think about that. How many times? You know, we have relatives. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. They do stupid things, right? Like Lot. They do dumb things. And, and, and there's times where we, we kind of get sick and tired of bailing them out. And we say, you know what? You rot in it. You know, I think this is a, a, a message to us that sometimes we have to, no matter, even when we have foolish brothers and sisters, even when we have foolish friends that get themselves in trouble, a true loving Christian will always put their neck on the line, will always try to reach out and save that person and help them in any way we could, even if it costs us something. And that just shows you the faithfulness and the godliness of Abraham. I mean, he deferred to Lot, giving him the best of the land. He said, you choose what you want. And now, even though he made a foolish decision, he's still going out to save him. He didn't have to. He could have let him there. But he loved him so much, he wasn't going to let him suffer alone. So what happens? Abraham forms his alliance. He goes down. Um, he gets his 318 men, and he goes, pursues them as far as Dan, which is the northern border of Canaan. It's about uh, 80 miles north of where the war took place originally. So it's a long trek. He gets up there. It takes him several days. And once he comes upon the camp of uh, Kedoliomer's army, um, he cut and devises a strategy. He said, listen, let's split up. Let's ambush them. Let's do a two-pronged attack. We'll go one, you know, from the east, from the west, and let's get them at night. They won't suspect us at night. So this is not conventional war. Abraham knows he can't win a conventional war, so he resorts to guerrilla tactics. Here's maybe the first evidence of a guerrilla warfare in history, right here in the Bible. And so at nighttime, while all the soldiers are sleeping, uh, while they're probably uh, enjoying the festivities and drinking and, and indulging in food after enjoying the spoils of war, and they're all kind of sleeping and, and, and hungover, uh, that's when Abraham comes in. Pow! And what happens? He plunders them. We read here in... Verse 15, divide his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them, and he pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Not only did he defeat them, but they fled. He pursued them. They were running for the hills. The fear of God was put into them. And what does Abram do? He brings back all the possessions 
And he brought back all his and he brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram saves everybody. He went to save Lot, but in the process, he saved everyone. This is like something right out of a movie, right? Guys, movies in Hollywood are not original. Uh, all these ideas were there before. People are drawing from, from I tell you, the, especially the Old Testament is just filled with dramatic sequences and dramatic uh, 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 conclusions of what happens in these people's lives and how God works. And so Hollywood and everything out there is just mimicking and imitating and counterfeiting, which was already done and which is real. He handily defeats them, recovers all the plunder, and rescues Lot. But this leaves two questions raised immediately to us. First, first question I think we need to ask ourselves of this, is there ever a time when, as Christians, we should go to war? Right? And that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm looking at this text, and you know, here's Abraham going to war, and you know, what happened to turn the other cheek? You know, how should we as believers approach the context of war? Is there times, I mean, where we are just pacifists? Or are there t- is there ever a time to fight? And the answer is yes. Now, there's a long way of explaining this. I don't have time for that. But I can give you a short answer to this. Now, you see, although God does call us to be peacemakers, and we should never, ever preemptively cause war, in fact, the Bible tells us we should even suffer loss for the sake of peace. Abraham did that for the sake of peace. Lot, he said, listen, go, choose whatever you want, and I'll go the other way. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 6, I mean, Paul says to the church of Corinth, why don't you defraud yourselves less than you fight with one another? But there are times when it's necessary and just to fight. I was reading a commentary by James Montgomery Boyce, and he was interviewing a a young man who had attended his church who had served several years in prison. And in his time of counseling with the young man, the young man shared with him how, what a horrible experience prison was. And he said, one of the most, he got converted in prison. And he was sharing James Montgomery Boyce as a pastor. What happened. He said, one of the most horrible experiences was trying to fend off those who would want to sodomize and brutalize me in jail. And we all know what happens in jail. Big, strong guys, fine little skinny guys and well, we know the rest. And he so James Montgomery Boy says, what did you do? He says, I fought. I fought with all my life. And there is a time to fight. If somebody breaks into my house and threatens the life of my wife and children, it is necessary and it is just for me to defend them. There is nothing spiritual or godly about watching my family be brutalized. And on a national level, I think wars are very complex today. Uh, It's so hard to discern a just war from an unjust war. But, you know, in the 1940s, there weren't too many people who thought that it was unjust to go to Germany and defeat Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was brutalizing a whole group of people. He was mass murdering thousands and millions. Millions of Jews were, were, were being slaughtered at the hands of Hitler. He was raising through all of Europe, dropping bombs in every city. Good. The guy was a madman. There is a time for war, which is why everybody and their mother put on 
their fatigues and went to war in World War II to defeat the forces of evil. And so there are times. In this particular occasion, Abraham put his life on the line for his nephew. You know, sadly, there are many times when we see people in danger and harm and we don't risk our lives for them. We're nice and comfortable. We're safe. I mean, what do you do when you walk down you walk down a street and you see someone getting beat up? Do you let them, you just turn your back and say, you know what, it's not my problem. I don't want to get involved. I mean, that's the natural reaction. If you're physically able and you could protect and defend that person, great, call a cop. But do something. There are times where we must take action. The second question I want to ask today was how in the world could Abraham, with such a small militia, with such limited resources, go after such a massive army, such a formidable force of these Mesopotamian kings? It just seems unrealistic. He was outsourced, he was outnumbered, he was, he was clearly the underdog. Remember the movie Braveheart? Anybody here ever see Braveheart? I've seen it, one of my favorite movies. Abraham is the original Braveheart. But you see, it wasn't just because he was, he was somebody that had a lot of zeal. It was because he had faith in God. Abraham's victory was not due to his military night. It was not due to his personal wisdom. The victory was given to him because he trusted in God. And God was with him. You see, when we believe that God was with us, we can do great things by faith. There are going to be times where we have to take action in life. There are going to be times we're going to have to confront situations in our life that are very difficult. And we can't just sit back and remain passive. We're going to have to face the giants in our lives. But we can only do it by faith, knowing that God can give us the strength to do it. You try to do it in your own strength, you'll fail. When you know God is with you, you could do anything. This theme is echoed in the Bible. Uh, to Abraham's descendants, when he come to Israel, in Leviticus 26, 7 through 8, he promises them, he says, if you obey me and you fear me and you come into the land, you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. Look at the testimony of Scripture. This isn't just Abraham. What about Gideon and his army of 300 who defeated 196,000 Midianites? What about David and the Goliath where nobody wanted to face the giant? Everybody was afraid of him. And David went out with his sling. He says, I will slay you by the word of God. How dare you defy the Lord? What about a, a fledgling church of 12 apostles and 120 in the upper room of, of weak people who have followed Jesus and, and he just went to heaven? How do they go out and conquer the whole world as this book of Acts says they turn the whole world upside down? How was it that Ezra uh, came with the Jews back from Babylon to build a temple? How did he do it? Because he knew God was with him. When you know God is with you, you could do anything. I think too many times as Christians, we're always looking for the easy way out. We're looking for the most convenient and easy way to do something. Sometimes we're, well, well, it's not God. If we find difficulties or challenges in our life and some, we say, well, it's not God's will. If he wanted me to have this, then everything would be going easy. That's not necessarily true. There are times where God has something, his will for your life is to go through the challenge, is to go through the confrontation, is to go through the difficulty, trusting that he's going to get you through it. You can't go around it. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. Sometimes you've got to go right through it. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. Our great shepherd will never leave us or forsake us. There are some areas in our lives where we need to rise up to the occasion. We need to confront the Mesopotamian armies in our lives. But you see, you know what the most beautiful thing is? So many of us want to live in defeat, but the victory has already been given to us. You know, many times in the Old Testament, God tells Israelites, go to war, behold, I have given you the victory. Now, let me tell you something. The victory belongs to God. He's given it to you. But you've got to pick up your swords and fight. Now, those rare occasions where God, like he did with Sennacherib, where he sends the angel of the Lord and just wipes out a whole army. But for the most part, you've got to pick up your sword and fight. You've got to just face what God is calling you to do and, 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 and confront it head on and trust that God is going to give you the victory. And he's already given you the victory. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he proclaimed victory over every spiritual principality and power and evil force in this world. There is no, nothing on heaven or earth, nothing above and below. There is no creature in all the universe that could usurp the power and victory of Jesus Christ through the cross. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have the victory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That imagery there, Paul is saying that Christ, he's using the imagery in the Roman Empire when Caesar would come back from a, a successful conquest uh, in foreign lands. There would be a triumphal procession down, down the center road to the piazza in Rome. Um, you know those arches that are there? There'll be a huge, like a ticker tape parade. You know when the Yankees w- w- win or the Giants win? There's a ticker tape parade down in the city and there's a triumphant procession. Everybody's cheering. Well, when Rome ha- won a victory and they had a, a war that they conquered, the Roman army led by Caesar would just triumph down the, the main way in Rome and they would lead their captives and their hostages. They'd, they'd show the booty of war on display for everybody to see. Say, look, Rome is victorious with Caesar at the head. And that's the imagery Paul is using here. Christ is leading us in triumphant procession. He's at the head of the parade. He's leading us. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death. He's conquered everything in this world. He's putting them on open display in shame. And we are with Jesus claiming victory. Amen? To live in defeat is an oxymoron if you're a Christian. Because we have great victory in Christ. He's conquered the whole world. How could we possibly live in defeat? We need to have faith. Well, finally, Abram's moment of fame comes. He's recognized. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedoliomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, they went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Here he is coming out to this valley, And two very famous kings come out to meet him. Two very famous kings. The king of Sodom, Bera. And uh, the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Two very famous kings. And by the way, two kings that are polar opposites. They, They couldn't be further apart. 
One king is priest, also a priest. He's the priest of the Most High God. And one king is the ruler of the most wicked city notorious in Scripture. So two polar opposite kings come out to pay homage to Abraham. Now, now Abraham's on the map. No longer is he the wanderer from Ur, the shepherd on the hill, the fugitive from Egypt. No, Abraham's name is great now. Everybody knows who Abraham is. The question is, how does he respond to this greatness now? And that will really demonstrate who Abraham is in the coming verses. The first thing we want to look at is the contrast between these two kings. First, we read about Melchizedek, and he comes bringing bread and wine. Who is Melchizedek? Now, this is a, a very mysterious person in Scripture, and time doesn't suffice me today to go into a long study on it. it it's worth an entire sermon in itself. But just a few notes to let you know about Melchizedek. First of all, his name, Melchizedek, is Hebrew. It literally means king of righteousness. That's what the, the term, or righteous king. So he's a, he's a, he's a king of righteousness. He's a righteous king there. He's a man who lives rightly. He, he, he emblemizes righteousness. Secondly, he is the king of Salem. Now, Salem is the city of Jerusalem before it's made the capital of Israel. The word Salem itself is rooted in the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. But not only is Melchizedek a righteous king, he is a priest. He's a, he's a priest and a king at the same time. He's the priest of God Most High in Hebrew, El Elyon. But who is this mysterious priest king? Well, Jews and Christians have put forth theories for centuries. Some, especially Jewish rabbis, have put forward the idea that he's Shem, the son of Noah. If you interpret the genealogies literally in chapter 9 and 10, he would be a contemporary of Abram. But that, that can't be possible. Because it tells us in Hebrews 7.3 that he is without father or mother or genealogy. We don't have any genealogical record of, of Melchizedek, but we do of Shem. And the book of Genesis is filled with genealogies. Some believe he's, he's Jesus Christ in the pre-incarnate form. But this cannot be also, because again in Hebrews 7.3, we're told that he resembles the Son of God. And in 7.15, that Christ is in the likeness of Melchizedek. It's very hard for Jesus Christ to be like someone and be someone at the same time, Right? I may say, you know what, Ralph, I want to act like you, but I can't act, I can't be like you and be you at the same time. You're you and I'm me, right? And so in that sense, uh, we cannot say that he is a pre-incarnate version of Christ. Well, some say he's a divine being, maybe an archangel. But there's no grounds for us because the scripture tells us clearly in Hebrews 7, 4, he's a man, he's a human being. No ordinary man, but he's, nevertheless, he's a man. So who is he? Well, it's simply this. Most scholars will simply say, Melchizedek was a Canaanite who was a believer in God. In fact, he was, a, he was actually an extraordinary believer of God because he comes and blesses Abram. And such a great man was he that Abraham paid him a tithe. He gave him a tenth of all he had, indicating that Abraham recognized that this Melchizedek was indeed representative and a worshiper of the same God of Abraham, Yahweh. In fact, in the end, when Abraham says to uh, the king of Sodom, he says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, Yahweh, God Most High, El Elyon, 
So he puts the two together. Yahweh and El Elyon is the same God. Melchizedek is a worshiper. He's, this, he's a great man. He's an honorable man. God has called this Canaanite man and he's come and, and he's been illuminated by divine grace and he, he worships the Lord. He proclaims the Lord. Hey, guess what? Abraham says, I'm not alone anymore. I have a friend in Canaan. And as I said, he's no ordinary man. Abraham gives him a tenth of all that he has. Hebrews 6, chapter 7, 6, 7 says, this man who does not have a descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. And the writer of Hebrews says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. You see, what Melchizedek really is, is a prototype of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the king of righteousness. Isn't Jesus the king of righteousness? Isn't he the righteous branch who was promised to us, the Messiah, who would come and establish a kingdom of righteousness? He is a priest. Jesus Christ is both king and high priest at the same time. Psalm 110 tells us that, as Tom was reading before. He fulfills his priestly role by making atonement for us. He's in the order of Melchizedek. In fact, Christ's priesthood is not according to the Levitical order, but it's according to the order of Melchizedek. And his kingdoms are one of righteousness and peace where he dwells in the heavenly Jerusalem. Arthur W. Pink comments this. Not only did Melchizedek combine in his person the offices of king and priest, but in his titles he united righteousness and peace. Melchizedek was both king of righteousness and king of peace, and thus did he foreshadow the blessed result of the cross, work of our Lord, adorable Lord, for it was at the cross that mercy and truth met together and that righteousness and peace kissed each other. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> so how does this Melchizedek, how does he recognize Abraham? Well, he refreshes him. He brings him bread and wine. He sets a banquet before him and his men. He feeds them. He sees Abraham when he went through and he sets a royal banquet and feeds them. And then he blesses Abraham. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, clearly indicating Yahweh. And blessed be God of most high, who has delivered your enemy's hand. He doesn't sit there just praising Abraham, but he gives God the glory. And how does Abraham respond? He gives the glory back to God by giving a tithe to Melchizedek, recognizing that indeed it is God who blessed him. Shows a right attitude of worship when God delivers us and saves us. How do we respond? Do we give back to Him? Do we recognize Him? Or do we want to take it all the credit for ourselves? Finally, the king of Sodom, his name is Bera, approaches Abram. And look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. What are the first two words out of his mouth? Give me. Not thank you, not bless you, not Abraham, you are... No, give me. What a radical contrast. Melchizedek is bringing... First thing we read about Melchizedek, he's bringing gifts to Abraham. And what's the first words out out of Abira's mouth? Give me. Clearly, the contrast is that between a giver and a taker. Those who bless and those who are crude. Those who want to receive and those who want to bless. 
But the give me is the first two words of a rude offer made to Abraham. He says, give me the people, take the possessions. Now, that might seem like a reasonable offer. Actually, it's very reasonable. But you don't understand that in this culture, um, the victor is the one who stipulates the terms of spoil of war, not the defeated. You're cleaning the tar off your hide, and you have the nerve to come to this mighty man and dictate the terms of the spoil of war? Who do you think you are? It indicates what a self-centered, egotistical, and wicked man Bera is. And we'll see later down the road that Sodom and Gomorrah suffer a terrible fate. It's indicative of the character of all the people there. But how does Abraham respond? (laughs) He says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, Yahweh. Most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Why didn't he take any of the spoil? He didn't want it, and he didn't need it. His intention to go to war was not to take plunder, it was to rescue Lot. And he covenanted before he even went to war that he wouldn't take a dime lest he should be soiled and dirtied with this filthy money. So nobody could say, look at Abraham. You know how he got rich? He went to war with Kedoliomer and took all of Sodom and Gomorrah's wealth. That's how he got rich. No, nobody could pin that on Abraham. Anything that he would get would be clearly a result of the blessing of God and nothing from man. How much he trusted God. Could you imagine the temptation when, when, when Bera made that offer to him? Could you imagine the temptation to say, man, I'm going to take all this wealth. I'll be so powerful. No one will stop me. I mean, if he took all that wealth, he would have been so powerful, he could have conquered Canaan. Could have did it in his own strength. But no, he trusted in God. And he would not put himself in a position where his morality or integrity would be questioned. He wanted no moral ambiguity to his name. And that gives us a good example. There are times when we're going to be in a position where we have to make choices. Where we know our motives are correct. And we might be entitled to something, but it may not look good. But the Bible tells us that we should give offense to no one. Matthew 17, 24 through 27. That's when when, when. Peter was saying, Jesus, they're asking for the tax money. We, we don't really need to pay taxes. We're sons of the kingdom. And he said, yeah, we're free, but, but nevertheless, lest we give offense to nobody, let's pay the tax. You know, it wasn't that Jesus didn't have to pay tax to nobody, but it was so that we don't give an offense, so we don't give an appearance of evil to anyone. Let there be no appearance of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5, 22 tells us. No room for moral ambiguity. Paul the apostle was entitled to to a salary as a pastor. But in 1 Corinthians 9, what do we learn? He, he actually forewent his salary because people were accusing him of teaching for money, for filthy lucre. And he says, so none of you could accuse me of taking money for a bad reason. I won't even take a salary so that my, my moral integrity will not be under attack so I could be above reproach. Are there times where you're willing to forsake your rights to stand high above the crowd and to have moral integrity amongst your peers? That's when we're true witnesses for God. Well, let me conclude and bring it all together by saying this. Abraham was a relatively unknown man 
It was at this moment in his life where he would be catapulted to fame. He would see God's blessing and promises come to pass. God has blessed him. He's already a wealthy man. God promised to bless those who bless him and curse those who dishonor him, right? Kedorliomer dishonored Abraham by kidnapping Lot and taking his possessions. And what did God do? He brought a curse upon Kedorliomer. God promised to make his name great. And now we see that Abram is a celebrity in the land of Canaan. The priest king Melchizedek blesses him publicly, even among the wicked cities of Jordan. And he is respected and feared, even if begrudgingly, by the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. How does he respond? He gives all the glory back to God. You see, let me put it to you this way. God may have delivered Abraham from a great peril. God may give him great victory in the face of insurmountable obstacles. But the Lord has done and will always do the same for us. God has already given us a great victory over sin. He's given us a victory over death. He's given us the victory over Satan. All those who believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he came to this earth and died for our sins, went to that cross, took all our blame, all our guilt, all our our condemnation on himself, and bore God's wrath in our place. And he died. He suffered a real, genuine death. He died in our place. But three days later, he rose from the again rose from the dead and when he came out of the grave he claimed victory over all these things and he sits at the right hand of God the Father and he will come back and he will judge everybody one day and the good news is this you may be a sinner you may have been messed up you may have sinned against God and done some awful things but the good news is this that in Christ there's forgiveness that in Christ there's mercy but more so than that in Christ there's victory in Christ there's a new life In Christ there is fame and there is not in a worldly sense, but there is this fame that as we receive from God, his Holy Spirit, we are like him, we glorify him, we honor him, we are children of the king, children of light, and we bring that glory back to Jesus Christ himself. He crowns us with many crowns, but on the last day in Revelation 4, when we stand before him, we will cast all our crowns at the feet of Jesus and worship him and glorify him. You see, salvation, you may have been to church before, you may have heard the gospel, and as much as you want to believe it's all about you, it's really all about God. Yes, you're part of it. God saves you because he loves you, and he brings you to what? To himself. Jesus didn't die so you could simply have a a ho-hum life. God saved you to have a relationship with him, to bring all the glory and honor back to him. And that's when you will find the meaning of what it is to be blessed. Are you blessed in Jesus Christ today? If you're not, I urge you, I urge you with the gospel to repent. Turn from your sins. Flee from those things in your life that you know you are breaking God's law. And turn to Jesus Christ on the cross. See him lifted up and embrace him. And say, Lord, forgive me. And embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. Put your trust in Him. Believe in Him. It is enough. Nothing else you have to do. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. That is the message of Abraham throughout the book of Genesis. 
And it's the message of the Bible. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org. 